Good morning. Oh, it was a beautiful drive up from Grundy County this morning. So if you need to contemplate anything today, take time and go for a drive. The fall colors are beautiful. An eagle flew right in front of me and almost hit me. I thought it was a sign from God, and then I realized it was just eating the roadkill next to me. <laughs> we are in week two of our series covering the first four chapters of the book of John. And we will revisit John in the spring to talk some more about what he had to say. But John, one of Jesus' very closest friends, wrote this account of Jesus' life very late in his own life, perhaps near the age of 80 and 50 or more years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The original text was in Greek, and there's speculation that because he was Jewish and probably did not read and write the Greek language, that John may have dictated this gospel for someone else to write as he spoke. We don't know that for sure, but because of the way it's written in a direct and simple style, like someone just speaking to a group of friends, I can believe that. And I can imagine someone saying, John, friend, you are getting old. All of the other disciples who are with you at the beginning are gone. It is time to write down your story before it's too late. So just start at the beginning and I'll write. And I like to imagine that John settled back with a sigh, closed his eyes, reached back to some of his best memories. And he said, start at the beginning, huh? Okay. In the beginning was the word. And then John recounts with confident authority the greatest story ever told. And his telling of the story, having gained perspective with his age and his wisdom, it concentrates on the most important things, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and the signs he gave to make John and the other disciples believe that, what that meant for them and the rest of the world. John doesn't retell a single parable. He doesn't recount the birth of Jesus or spend time talking about genealogy. John's purpose is focused. It is to help those of us who will read this story, even 2,000 years after the death of Jesus, to know who Jesus was, to believe that Jesus was and is the Son of God, and to know why he made his dwelling among us. So today, I get to talk about John chapter 2, and like most of John's teachings, this chapter is concise, but it tells us so much. Only two events happen in John chapter 2. The first is so famous that even the most devout atheist knows about it. It's Jesus turning water into wine. And in the second event, Jesus gets really angry in the temple, and with these two events, Jesus turns in earnest to the business that God assigned him to complete, saving all of us. And in order to save us, he first has to help us believe who he is. And that is what chapter two is all about. So I don't usually do this, but today, I would like you to read you an entire story all at once. I want you to listen to the story as if you are just sitting around talking with your friends at coffee and someone's telling you this story. Hear the whole thing. Even if you are forming questions in your mind or you're not understanding everything, I find that it's a good technique for reading the gospel. Read the whole chunk at once and then go back and dissect, dissect it a little at a time. So settle back this morning. 
try to imagine that you're sitting around a campfire with John, a wise and great storyteller, recounting a great event, and not a story that he's overheard or that he's repeating secondhand. No, he is telling you a story to which he not only had a front row seat, but a story in which he had a principal part. So here we go. Chapter 2 picks up as Jesus has gathered his disciples together, and they're heading away from Bethany, which is very near Jerusalem. They're heading north to Galilee. So listen to John. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his wee disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Well, nearby stood six stone water jars. You know the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons? Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best for last. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and we disciples believed in him. Now, if I'm sitting around the campfire with John, I have three questions right off the bat, okay? I don't know what you're thinking, but here's my first. Hey, John, what is the big deal about running out of wine? And what happened to cause this complete 180 of my time has not yet come and a moment later, Jesus is performing his first miraculous sign. And John, John, how does this story help me believe in Jesus? Well, let's tackle the first question first. What's the big deal about running out of wine? A little history comes in handy here, because what we do for a wedding is way different. Today, if you get a wedding invitation and you say, yes, I'm going to come, you're committing to about a 10-hour time frame, right? You're going to start getting ready in the early afternoon. You go to the wedding. Maybe you go to dinner. And even if you commit to the entire dance, you are out of there by midnight, right? Not so at this time in history. A wedding feast could last for a whole week, and it might involve the entire town. Can you imagine the stress and planning to coordinate food and drink and banquets and dancing for the whole town for an entire week? I think that's why somebody invented elopement at some time in history. I mean, it was considered an insult to refuse the wedding invitation. Jesus and his disciples themselves had traveled about 80 miles to attend this one. Hospitality. It was such a cornerstone of the culture. And refusing a wedding invitation was considered bad manners. Now, if refusing an invitation was bad manners, extending an invitation 
and not following through with good hospitality was humiliating. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Oh no, this is not good. This is like you hopped on a cruise ship and halfway across the Atlantic, they ran out of toilet paper. This is not gonna be a five-star review. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so now I come to my second question. Jesus says it's not my time. And his mom says one short sentence and bam, he is performing his first miracle. Am I the only one who's ever wondered what happened? So it's important for you to note here too that woman is not derogatory in the Greek uh, like we might think of it as in the English translation. So it's more like madam or my lady or my dear. Jesus is being respectful to his mother. In my own faith journey, I have literally spent hours reflecting on this one-line response that she gives. One time I listened to this story on my audio Bible over and over all the way from Grundy County to Des Moines. That's like a 90-mile trip. Trying to figure out why it seems so important. How did this one little nudge from Mary affect this story? Why did John include it? Well, here are my thoughts. This problem is going to take a literal miracle to fix. They are out of wine. No doubt the guests have noticed, and you just can't make more. Wine takes a long time. There is no high wine and spirit just around the corner. They both know it's going to take a miracle because Jesus answers, my time has not yet come. If human intervention could help, everyone, including Mary and Jesus, would already be helping. But Mary nudges her reluctant son, addressing him indirectly by speaking to the servants. With this one sentence, do whatever he tells you, Mary has provided a catalyst for a transformation. She speaks to her son, Jesus, who is both fully human and fully God. And this is one of those mysteries that we have a hard time understanding, don't we? And she's responded to him in a way that addresses both her human son and her son who is her Lord and Savior. Her son, who is about to transition from the part of his earthly life where most people just knew him as that carpenter Joseph's kid, to the part of his life where many people will call him Lord. It's a pivotal moment in his story, and she is up to it. Think about this. The human side of Jesus says, why are you bothering me, Mom? This is not my problem, and it's not my time. And Mary nudges him just a little bit. She's lived with Jesus his whole human life. She's used to turning to him. She knows him like no one else on earth, and having been given the task, of raising Jesus, she realizes, I think it is your time. You're ready. You've got this. Go on. And so she simply speaks one sentence that conveys all the confidence and love and belief she has in him. Do whatever he tells you. She believes in him, in who he is. She believes that he can help in this situation that might seem so minor to us, but is a really big deal to this community. And she believes he's ready to step fully into his role as God. And her belief 
helps me believe in who he is. And with the same words, Mary conveys to Jesus, her Lord and Savior, that she submits to his way. She brings him a problem and she simply says, here's the problem, my Lord. I trust you to handle it any way you want. Whatever you say, I know you have the answer. I know you can help. She didn't even offer one single suggestion. While I, someone who did not raise Jesus, who certainly does not know him the way his mother does, I tend to bring my problems to him along with a few suggestions of how he might handle it. Do you do that too? Hey, while you're making all this extra wine for this party, would you be sure and make some really good Merlot? I think it's quite fitting that Mary, the person in history who best understands the mystery of what it meant for Jesus to be fully human and fully God, is the one right there at the beginning of his quest to help all of us believe. John 2, 5. Do whatever he tells you. You know, if you're looking for a life verse, that's really not a bad choice. So after this, Jesus decides to step into his job of demonstrating to everyone exactly who he is with a simple and yet powerful and deeply symbolic miracle. And so to question three. John, John, how does this story help me believe in Jesus? Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. How do the servants fill up the jars with 120 to 180 gallons of water? I mean, how many servants does that take? How long does that take? Certainly, in wealthy Rome, they were experimenting with lead pipes to bring water into their homes, something that probably contributed to the downfall of Rome, by the way, because all the leaders in Upper Crust got lead poisoning. But out here in Cana, where we are in our story, out in the sticks, they would have had to carry water. And that makes this miracle so believable. A lot of people were involved, and not his inner circle, not his family, no one who stood to gain anything was doing this work of filling the water jars. Simple servants, and several of them. Plus, it would have taken quite some time. Guests would have noticed this going on. The sheer volume of water meant that it wasn't sleight of hand. If Jesus had made one gallon of wine, perhaps one might have argued that he pulled it out from under his cloak. But 180 gallons? I gave this teaching in Grundy County last week, and someone came up afterwards and told me 180 gallons of water weighs 1,500 pounds, plus whatever containers they were using to carry it. Verses 8 through 10, then he told them, the servants, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine 
after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. And so the servants who helped draw and carry all that water, who knew perfectly well what they had put into the ceremonial jars, became some of the first to be shown who Jesus was. Verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Now I could spend some time talking about how symbolic it was that Jesus used the ceremonial washing jars to turn water into wine, which is a foreshadowing of his blood on the cross replacing the old ceremonial system of cleansing and sacrifices to atone for sin. But I'm going to let you think about that yourselves today on your drive out in the country, okay? Instead, I want to say a few words about belief and faith. You see, John sets out to write this account so that you will have a reason to believe in Jesus. He is not asking you to have blind faith. He didn't, and neither did the rest of the disciples. They saw miraculous signs. John saw things happen, signs that gave evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior. Belief, at least to get started, is evidence-based. Jesus didn't just pick up a bunch of disciples and say, hey, have faith that I'm the Messiah. No, he showed them who he was. The events and signs and miracles piled up and turned into belief in what they were seeing and who Jesus was. And that belief led to a sure and certain faith that Jesus is Lord and a faith that what he says is true. Because they saw and believed in things they had seen, they had faith in things that he said and taught that were yet unseen. Because they saw and believed in the things they had seen, they had faith in things that he said and taught that were yet unseen. Sadly, we sometimes say to people who have doubts, you just need to have faith. I don't think so. Not blind faith. You first need to have just a little tiny bit of belief. Read the gospel. Talk to people who have encountered God in their lives today. See for yourself what Jesus does. With just a little belief, you can let Jesus in, and that leads to faith. Faith is not pie in the sky, wishful dreaming based on nothing. That would never last. Faith is what comes after believing in what has happened and what is still happening. And John wrote all these things down so that you would first believe and then have faith. So can you read and hear this story of water to wine, and think about John's account and believe. He hopes so. That's why he wrote it down for you. Near the end of John's gospel, he says this. This is in John chapter 20. Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
When he says this book, he just means his own gospel, right? The Bible has not totally been compiled yet. John is saying, I'm writing this for you. I haven't written down every single miracle. However, these, the ones that I have recorded, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. By believing, you may have faith. And I want you to think about that difference. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe enough to lay that down as a foundation for a strong faith? After Jesus performed his first miracle, his, he and his mom and brothers and his disciples all went to Capernaum and then back to Jerusalem just before the Passover. Now, this is not the Passover where he's arrested and crucified, an earlier Passover. People have traveled a long way to be at the temple for Passover, and they sometimes didn't have the local currency or the ability to bring an animal sacrifice such a long distance. So the religious leaders have allowed a bunch of vendors and money changers to set up booths in the temple. And they were ripping people off in order to exchange for the right currency to pay the tax or to get an animal sacrifice. Think of it this way. I cannot bring my 50-cent bottle of water through airport security. But once I get to my gate, they are so happy to sell me a bottle for $8. Jesus was so angry about this practice that he actually made a whip and drove cattle and sheep out of the temple, overturned the money changers' tables, and scattered their coins all over. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. In another version, he says, how dare you turn my father's house into a market? Then the Jews demanded of him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? In other words, who do you think you are? You see, they don't just want Jesus to say he's the Messiah. Anyone can claim to be the Messiah. Show me so that I will believe you. That's what they're saying. Isn't that what we want to? Prove to us that you are Lord. And that's why John is writing this gospel. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Well, they all scoffed at him. It had taken 46 years to rebuild the temple since Herod started remodeling it and it still wasn't done. How could he build this huge building again in three days? But John, in his firsthand account of what happened, says this. But the temple he had spoken of was his body and after he was raised from the dead in three days, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. John was a front row witness to the signs and miracles that Jesus gave so that his disciples and his mom and brothers and servants and the guests at the wedding and the religious leaders and the folks at the temple and all of us would believe in who he was. That we would believe in who he is. Jesus didn't make 180 gallons of wine so they could have a great party, although they probably did. 
Jesus made 180 gallons of wine to show everyone who he was. And then John wrote it all down so we would hear about it. And though John tells us he doesn't record every single miracle, he does recount for us eight miraculous signs in his gospel in order to give us a foundation to believe, hoping that once we believe in what was seen, that we could come to faith in what is yet unseen. And we're gonna talk more about what faith in the unseen means to all of us next week when Ed comes to teach about John chapter three. Let's pray together. God, forgive us for our unbelief, for our doubts, for the times we just don't know if we can believe that it's true that you sent Jesus to save us. God, thank you for sending John to write down these accounts to help us with that belief. And Lord, I pray that today, someone here or someone at home hears this message from John and it creates just a little spark of belief that allows Jesus in and lays that foundation of faith. And as we go forward, open our eyes to see not only what happened before, the things that are written for us, but the ways in which Jesus is helping us believe now. It is in your holy and precious name that we pray, Lord Jesus. And all God's people say, amen.